we had so much sunlight there at the beginning of service, it didn't feel anything like evening, but that's all right, we'll take it. All right, so we are in uh, a book of Isaiah, we're in chapter 36 tonight is where we're picking up. And we're kind of getting into a different section in Isaiah, from uh, chapter 36, uh, basically to chapter 40, um, Isaiah, he switches to a, a historic narrative, so there's no real prophecy here, he's just telling the story of some things that happened uh, in Israel, or in uh, Judah during his lifetime. Uh, and so they focus on some events that have to do with King Hezekiah, some things that we've kind of talked about off and on over the last few weeks. Uh, but Hezekiah is the king during this period, and uh, you know he's, he's a unique king uh, in that he actually did right in the sight of the Lord, the Bible says, uh, in Second Chronicles. Uh, he's the one that he restored uh, worship in the temple after having it cleansed. Uh, he reinstated celebration of the Passover because the people had kind of forgotten how to even do it. Um, and the big thing, if you're familiar with Israel's history at all, the big thing that Hezekiah did is he actually went out and removed the high places, um, the pillars, the Asherah poles, basically all the places that people went to worship pagan gods. He actually went and got rid of those. That was something that every king said they would do and then never did. Kind of like our presidents and everything they promised to do, you know. Um, so he did all that, and then he also uh, made sure that the people started supporting the, uh, the Levites and the priests and all that. And then Second Chronicles 31, I'm going to read a couple verses before we get into our main text. It says this, it says, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good, right, and true before the Lord his God. Every work which he began in the service of the house of God, in law and in commandment, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. So you notice, he's not a perfect, uh, perfect guy, but what he did for the Lord while he was seeking God, uh, he, he did with all his heart and it prospered. And if you, uh, if you remember on Sundays, last year we did a, a, a study of First and Second Kings, and we saw all the different kings, and there wasn't a good one in the bunch, really, you know. Uh, and so Hezekiah is a little bit unique. He still has his problems, but, but how does a good man, a good king, a good leader, uh, how does he do God's will and help his people get through this crisis? That's what we're going to look into. So let's pray, and then we'll get right into it. Lord, we thank you uh, for giving us the opportunity to worship and fellowship, that we have a place to gather together. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we just pray that you would help us tonight. To uh, We're in a, a book that very often isn't preached or taught because it's difficult. It's hard to understand. So we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, help us to see the truth of your word, help us to understand it, and through that, to understand you and to know you better. Lord, we pray for your blessing on the message and on your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Isaiah 36, verse 1. It says, Now, in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. So the fortified cities, these were any city that had you know, any kind of defense system of any kind. And, and you would have... Um, 
fortified cities every so many miles leading up to the capital. It was a way to, you know, hold off the enemy. And so he seized all of them. Um, the history tells us he seized 46 different fortified cities. Verse 2, it says, And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool of the highway of the Fuller's Fields. Okay, so that Rabshakeh, that's not really a guy's name. It's, a, it's more like a title. But this would basically be like, it was a mixture of uh, like field commander and cupbearer. Remember Nehemiah is in the Bible. He's the he was the cupbearer to the king, and in our minds, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I think I don't think of that as like a powerful role, right? That's it's just the guy that took the king his wine, but really it was a really important role because they, for one, they made sure the wine wasn't poisoned, but they ended up being the king's, you know, usually his closest advisor. So this guy is basically second in command. Um, and he's, he's sent uh, from Lachish, which is a fortified city. It's about 25 miles from Jerusalem. But back in Isaiah 8, when we first started this study, uh, Isaiah had warned that this is what was going to happen, right? That Assyria was going to uh, go through this region like a flood, that they would just, you know, engulf everything and everyone and, uh, and reach right up to the neck of of uh, Judah, you know, ba- basically right up to uh, Hezekiah's neck or up to Jerusalem. And so that's what they've done. They, they're surrounding Jerusalem. And so these events, I was talking with uh, Bob earlier, it's pretty interesting. These events are recorded uh, in history in multiple places, not just in the Bible. So there's a historian that you may have heard about before named Josephus, and he's a Jewish historian. He talks about these events. There's also a guy, Herodotus. He's basically considered the father of history. He's the first guy that really bothered to write things down. And uh, so he's a Greek historian a little earlier than Josephus. He talks about these events. And even Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he had historians with him who wrote everything down, and they record these events. So it's really it's going to be interesting to see how uh, all the different takes on this uh, work together. But we've talked about this um, quite a bit over the last, I don't know, five or six messages. Uh, But you may recall Hezekiah had tried to buy uh, the king's favor, right? He tried to basically pay his way out of having to deal with him. So we'll read a couple verses here in 2 Kings 18, just, just so we're all on the same page. 2 Kings 18, verse 13. It says 14, but 13. It says, Now in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, uh, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. Just what we just read. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And so the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And so Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. And at that time Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. 
Then the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. So they went up and came to Jerusalem, and when they went up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway of the Fuller's Field. So 2 Kings records the same sequence of events. Hezekiah tried to make a deal with Sennacherib, and he said, look, how much do I need to pay you to leave us alone? And basically, Sennacherib's answer is, all of it. Everything you've got. And so Hezekiah strips the gold off the, you know, all the, the fancy plating from the temple and all of that stuff. Pays him. And then Sennacherib's like, thanks for the money. And then he sends his army to Jerusalem anyway. Because, you know, when you give the devil his due, he just demands more. Right? It's never enough. And so Rabshakeh, he marches his troops to Jerusalem anyway, and he calls out, uh, he, he offers them the chance to surrender. Offers uh, people of Jerusalem the chance to surrender. Isaiah 36, verse 3. It says, Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, uh, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. So this is basically like the secretary of state and the secretary of the treasury and, you know, the, the top officials. They come out. Verse 4, it says, Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? Even the enemy knows uh, where you put your faith or who you put your faith in matters. It's important. Verse 5, he says, I say, your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. Remember, we talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago. Isaiah, Hezekiah had sent some officials to Egypt to try to arrange a protection deal, right? They were going to get the Egyptians to fight for them. But Isaiah went to Hezekiah and he warned him. He said, this is a bad idea. Right? The Lord says that that's the last place we should get help from. So even though they had sent a delegation, they never actually made that treaty. They never actually got Egypt to, to fight for them. But um, Sennacherib has heard about it anyway. Verse 7, it says, But if you say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar? So this guy's confused, right? He's heard that Hezekiah has gone around and taken down all the altars and the high places. And that was most pagan people, they believed, right? The, the closer to heaven you are, the better your God can hear you, right? So that's why you built these high places. That's why you build an altar on top of a hill. And so he assumes that Hezekiah has taken down these high places um, where they worshipped Yahweh, and that's not what, you know, it's the opposite of that. I point that out because I think, you know, if you, oftentimes, if you do something to please God, uh, it will be misunderstood by other people. 
You know, you, if you choose not to participate in something that, you know, the Lord has convicted you and you feel like this is not something I should be a part of, people will say, well, you're no fun anymore, right? Uh, if you trust God with your money, you know, people will say, well, you're being duped or, you know, churches are all about money, right? Um, if you make church a priority, you know, if you're weird enough to come to church on a Wednesday, you're, you're clearly brainwashed, right? You're in some kind of cult. If you're modest, well, now you're a prude, right? It, it's, the world doesn't understand when you, when you do something uh, for the Lord. And so this guy, he does not understand what Hezekiah has been up to. Verse 8, he says, Now therefore, come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you, I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. Remember, they tried to, that was the whole deal. They were trying to get horsemen from Egypt, right? Because that was, a horse was like a, you know, a, a weapon of mass destruction in those days, right? And this guy says, you wanted help from Egypt? Look, I'll give you 2,000 horses to fight against this, but I don't think you can muster 2,000 men who can ride them. He's probably right. Verse 9, How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy it? Now check this out. In the, in the Hebrew, he uses Yahweh here. He says, The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. He's lying, right? God has not been talking with this guy uh, in, in all likelihood. And, but he claims that God has told him to come and destroy this land. He doesn't know Yahweh, uh, as, he doesn't know as much about him as he thinks he does. But he claims the Lord is with him. And it just kind of reminds me of, you, know, have you, ever, you ever watch like those award shows and, uh, you know, the, the actor or the singer will be like, you know, I just want to thank Jesus for this Grammy that I won for this song about girls' butts, you know. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like Jesus was a big part of that, you know. Um, <laughs> People will, uh, you know, try to act like the Lord is with them when they, and, and whether they know him or not. But, uh, you know, he's trying to make these people doubt. And the enemy loves that. He loves to make us doubt and to, and to convince us that God isn't with us. He's, he's with the enemy, right? That, that he's not for us, he's against us. The enemy will like to, likes to tell you that you're worthless, right? God says that you're precious. You're so precious that he sent his son to die for you. The enemy will tell you that, you know, you've done it now. That was the sin that was just too far. But the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin once and for all, the Bible tells us. The worst and most dangerous is he will whisper that you should just destroy yourself. 
And Jesus says the opposite, right? In, in John 10, verse 10, he says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So they, these people, they're, they're hearing the voice of the enemy right in front of them, and things look hopeless, right? They're surrounded. We'll go back to Isaiah 36, verse 11. It says, Then Eliakim and Shebna and Joah said to Rebshakeh, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak with us in Judean in the hearing of the people who were on the wall. So in other words, there's a crowd gathered listening to all this, and they're like, you know, eh, you know, quiet down, speak to us in a different language where most people won't be able to understand. Verse 12, but Reb Shekha said, has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words? And not to the men who sit on the wall, doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? Uh, then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. And that's partially true. Hezekiah was not capable of delivering them. But God is. And that's, that's the, one of the oldest tricks in the book. The oldest trick that the devil loves to use is he likes to hide, you know, a pint of poison in a lake of truth. The first time we, we see him interacting with mankind, he's saying, you will surely not die. There's only one word in that sentence that's not true. But the problem is, if I hand you a glass with a liquid in it, and I say, 99% of this is not poison. If you, if you, should you drink it? You know? if, if, you go, if you're climbing a mountain and you take one step past the peak of the mountain, are you even higher? Or what? what what's happening? You're falling down the mountain, right? just takes a little bit of untruth to ruin the whole thing. Verse 15, it says, uh, Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying that the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me, and, each, uh, and eat each of his vine, and each of his fig tree, and drink each of the waters of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. About 35 years before this, under the, a previous king, uh, Tiglath-Pileser, if you're looking for a Bible name for your, your baby, there's a great one, Tiglath-Pileser. Uh, anyway, under that king, Assyria had adopted this new policy that whenever they would invade an area, they would basically round up all the able-bodied people, and move them to another area that Assyria had previously conquered. And basically it kept everybody on their toes. Nobody really, you know, nobody had uh, connections to the land they were in. And it helped them kind of keep everyone under their thumb. It kept, every, it kept everyone unstable and unsure, and it worked. And so he says, go ahead, it's surrender to me. I'll let you guys, I'm not going to hurt anybody. You can, you can eat and drink and live just like you have. 
until I come and take you away. It's just like the devil, right? Like, you don't need to worry. You can enjoy yourself until you can't. You can live it up until you can't when I come for you. Right? What's, your, what's your carrot? What's the thing that the devil's trying to convince you is no big deal until it becomes a really big deal? We'll read on here. Verse 18, it says, Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And when, uh, and when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. So basically he says, look, all the other places we've conquered, they have their gods, and it didn't help them. Why do you think yours is any different? But I love this. It says they were silent and didn't answer at all. You know, you don't need to negotiate with the enemy. I've been quoting this a lot here lately, but Proverbs 10, verse 19, says this. It says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Basically, the less you say, the better. And really, I pray that all of us would have the wisdom to discern when someone is actually seeking the truth versus seeking to taunt and argue with you. Because if that's what they're after, they will not hear anything. You're better off to just not say a word. Right? If somebody comes to you wanting to argue, look, nobody, I don't believe anyone has ever been argued into believing in Jesus. Maybe, maybe it's happened, but... 1 Peter 3, verse 15, this may seem to say contrary to what I just said, but he says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Sometimes we quote that and say, you know, you should always, that's why you need to study a uh, your Bible and be able to answer any questions someone has. That's not what Peter says. This isn't about apologetics. This is about your personal testimony, especially when it comes to suffering, if you read it in context. In other words, when you go through a hard time and handle it differently, and someone says, how? How did you get through that? That's the, the question you need to be ready to answer. Because we're not, we're not called to argue people into believing. But we are called to testify, right? To be a witness of what God has done in our lives. So it's just important to be able to discern. You know, Jesus talked about this too, right? To not cast your pearls before swine. Not, know when somebody is just looking for a fight 
And I can tell you from experience, the fight is not worth it. But if they actually are willing, you know, they want to know the truth, then that's a whole other ball game. But anyway, so they, they could tell he's just looking to, you know, to egg them on. So Isaiah 36, verse 22, it says, Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rebshakeh. So that's a thing in the Old Testament you'll see a lot, that they would rend their clothing or tear their clothing or they would wear sackcloth. These were all ways of showing that you're upset or you're mourning, you know, that, it's, that you're really distressed. Um, Isaiah 37, verse 1, it says, uh, And when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth, and he entered the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna, the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. So now that things are really going sideways, they're like, oh yeah, we have a prophet. Let's go see what he has to say. Verse 3, they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection. For children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you've heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So he says, don't you worry. This king you're so scared of, I'm going to put some things in motion to where he's going to run home. Verse 8, Then Rebshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, who had heard that the king had left Lachish. And when he heard them say concerning Tirhaka, the king of Cush, this is the king of Ethiopia, uh, he has come out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah. So a rumor has gotten to Sennacherib that the king of Ethiopia is coming to fight against him. And he's like, oh man, I've got to go deal with that because Ethiopia is a real world power uh, unlike Israel at the time. So he says, okay, okay, I got, I, I'm going to go deal with that, but I'm going to send a messenger back to Hezekiah saying in verse 10, thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your, God, uh, let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations which my father have destroyed deliver them, even Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the sons of Eden who were in Telassar? I have no idea if I pronounced that last one right or not. We'll go with it. Verse 13, where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim and of Hena and of Iva? Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. So he, 
the, this king has sent basically a letter saying all the things that Rebshakeh had said to Hezekiah. Hezekiah gets the letter, took it from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. I love that. He gets this terrible news, this threatening letter, and he couldn't wait to take it to talk to his best friend about it. Right, he took it to the Lord. So he got the bill that he couldn't pay. Or he got the, the divorce papers. Or those test results. And he laid them out before the Lord. You know, 1 Peter 5, Peter says that we were to cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We all have things we're anxious about, that we're stressed about. And a lot of those things we just kind of keep to ourselves because God, you know, you call on God for the big stuff, right? But that's not what the Bible says to do. It says to cast all your anxiety on him. He wants to be involved in every little thing that's bothering you. It says he went up to the house of the Lord to do this and I'm not saying that you should all bring your bills in here and lay them out on the floor. I mean, you can, I guess. Um, we can compare bills. I don't know that any of us would be any more cheered up from that. But, uh, but you know, the Bible tells us that as, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus, that you are the house of the Lord. This building isn't it. You are the house of the Lord. You're the temple of, of, of God. That he, he lives in you. So you don't need to be here to, to pray, right? You don't need to um, be in any special location to, to lay those things out before him. Let's see if we can uh, push through this last little bit here. Verse 15, Isaiah 37, verse 15. It says, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to all the words of Sennacherib, who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria, uh, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Now, he says a lot of stuff, but ultimately his prayer is, deliver us. Right? God, you saw all the things he did. You've heard all the things he said. Deliver us. You know, prayers um, don't need to be long. Scotty was just like, what? No, I'm just kidding. I'm teasing. Scotty, Scotty prays some beautiful prayers. But, you know, in Ecclesiastes 5, I'm just going to read you a couple verses real quick. It says this. It says, as you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. It is evil to make mindless offerings to God. Don't make rash promises and don't be hasty in bringing matters before God. After all, God's in heaven and you are here on earth, so let your words be few. In other words, you don't have to, you know... 
don't try to impress God with a big poetic, you know, flowery sounding prayer. Just say what you mean, mean what you say, and that's all he needs. You know, the Lord's Prayer, depending on your translation, is about 56 words. The Gettysburg Address is about 266 words. The Ten Commandments, 297 words. The Declaration of Independence is 300 words. And recently the government passed an order setting the price of cabbage, which was 26,911 words. Make of that what you will. So it's not how much you talk, it's what you say that's important. Uh, Isaiah 37, verse 21, it says, Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent word to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. Uh, she has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom uh, have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? In other words, God says, who do you think you're talking to? Right? Verse 24. Uh, Through your servants you have reproached the Lord, and you have said, with many chariots I came up to the heights of the mountains and to the remotest parts of Lebanon, and I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses, and I will go to its highest peak, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank waters, and with the sole of my feet I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. In other words, you think you did this? I created all that stuff. Verse 27, Therefore their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field and as the green herb, as grass on the housetops is scorched before it is grown up. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me, and because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose, and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Then this shall be the sign for you. You'll eat this year what grows of itself, and the second year what springs from the same, and in the third year sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit." In other words, he tells the people of Jerusalem, look, I'm, I'm going to turn him away, and he's not just going to be gone for a little while. You go ahead, it's going to be for good. You go ahead and eat the stuff that you ha- already had planted. Go ahead and plant your fields for next year and plan on eating the harvest of it. He's not coming back. Verse 31, the surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. That's cool. I could spend a whole message on that. Uh, take root downward and bear fruit upward. I think we can finish it. Verse 32. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he will return, and he will not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went out. Here's this verse we've been quoting the last few weeks. 
and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. It's better in King James. When they woke in the morning, behold, they were dead. So here's the thing. I know we're running a little longer, but history agrees that something really weird happened when Sennacherib came to Jerusalem. He ravaged Palestine. Like he, I mean, nothing stood before him. Basically, most places just surrendered when he came to town. But he gets to Jerusalem, this little podunk nothing town. And he turns around and goes home with a much smaller army than he set out with. Josephus says that all of his troops died of the plague in one day. Herodotus, uh, he says that mice ate all of the bowstrings, and so they, they fled. Sennacherib, uh, in his own, in the, in the palace tablets, it says that he just got bored and went home. We do know that when he got home, the people were really upset, and they saw him as vulnerable. They saw him as weakened. Verse 37, it says, So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And it came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, killed him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. I don't know what happened. The Bible says that the Lord did it. Maybe it was through a plague. Maybe mice ate the bowstrings. I don't get that one. Whatever it is, whatever the big baddie is in your life, um, the bad news, the thing you're worried about, spread it out before the Lord. And you don't have to talk him into anything. You just say, Lord, I... I don't want to listen to the lies of the enemy. Help me to trust you. Right? You don't have to say anything uh, flowery or, or poetic. But just spread it out before the Lord. And he, he's the God that delivers. He's the God who saves. And he's the God who keeps his word. So we're going to cover a little bit more of this stuff next week. But uh, for now, let's pray and we'll, we'll get you out of here. Lord, we thank you so much that uh, you've gave us the opportunity to worship tonight. We thank you that, um, that you are the God who delivers, the God who saves, the God who is not, uh, is not shaken by the words of the enemy. Lord, help us to remember when, when people are railing and raging against you that, that it's not because you're not there. It's not because they have a good case. It's because they don't want to be accountable to you. They don't want to admit that you're there. Help us to remember that you are who you are. And Lord, help us to trust you more. Lord, we pray that you would send Jesus back, that you would come and come quickly. And we pray all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Everyone said, amen. All right, ready?
Great.